right, so let me take you back to my story about when I was a little girl. I asked my mom, how do we know we're right? And she said, because the Bible is true. Okay, well, that's a good answer maybe for a six-year-old. But how do we know the Bible is true? Right? I'm a skeptic. How do we know the Bible is true? I'm Jeff Eckert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. Where does the truth come from? In this episode, we discuss this question from Michelle Rewa. We are discussing this as a continuation from last episode where we had the question, does science disprove God? And now we are moving on to if that is true or false, we are now looking at a question that kind of builds off of that question of where does the truth come from? Where do we get our truth? This is part two of six of this mini series that we're doing about foundational truths of faith for students. And as you uh, continue on in this, we want to encourage you, if you didn't hear this, the previous episode, these episodes do tend to build on one another. You don't necessarily have to listen to it, but there are references in this episode, especially that reference the last podcast that we had. This is Michelle Rewa, and she has been a guest on our podcast several times before, and she is an apologist and a scientist, also um, really dialed into a lot of theology and scripture and someone that is in, involved and invested in local uh, youth ministry. And also, this was her giving a live talk at NTS camp in the summer of 2021. And Jason, this idea of where does the truth come from, we could ask that question a different way that a lot of people are asking is where does my truth come from? That's a pretty big difference between the truth and my truth. We can ask that question because we typically have the well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And so we're all searching for the truth, but sometimes we package it into what's true for me may be different for what's true for you. And, and so Michelle lays it out pretty, pretty clearly um, how we can draw truth from God's word, the Bible, and how we can rely on it and how we can trust it and how we can just go to it as a source of truth ultimate truth, the, the big T truth. Um, and it's all based on reason and logic. That, that's one of the things that we're dealing with when we're talking with students today is there's so much emotion involved in students thinking and understanding and approach to life and to the world and to this idea of truth. And Michelle does a great job of helping us to discern between understanding how emotions play into that because uh, when we're helping students understand truth, we have to help them pull away this idea of emotion because when emotion gets involved, you can really skew our, our rational perception of what truth is. So we shouldn't ignore emotion, but we should address it and then be able to say, let's look at the pure logic. Let's separate the emotion. And as I've worked with students for, for many, many years, one of the things I've always said to students is, if I were to come up to you and take something of yours, if I were to take your phone and just take it and you're say, hey, that's not right. And I go, well, that's your truth. But my truth is I can take whatever I want. The logic of where 
truth comes from it being different for everyone breaks down so fast. But I think the issue is emotion gets involved because we know someone else that believes maybe something completely different. If we're coming from a, a Christian and a biblical worldview, we can come at something with that perspective in our minds. And someone else may, we may know, or a student may know and love that comes from a, a non-religious perspective or a different religious experience, a different faith or belief or understanding. And we go, well, I, I love that person. So therefore, uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't disagree with them. Maybe it's just true for them. It's true for me. And we just leave it at that. And feelings don't equal truth. You'll hear that just because you feel something doesn't make it true. And, and Michelle, again, lays out good illustrations, good way to think of it critically so that hopefully if you are using reason and just are open to it, that it makes sense and understandable to go, okay, I when I get into this topic of discussion, my emotions start to rise and I want to react in a certain way, but am I thinking through it logically or clearly and eliminating that emotion? But just because I feel something doesn't make something true. You have to look at the reason why it's true. And Michelle, again, really does a great job with that. And this, what you're about to hear, and in this mini series that we're doing, the six part series, we want to encourage you, if you're working with students, um, maybe directly, you can get this podcast episode to them. If you're a youth pastor or a youth worker, get this to your other volunteers and get this information to them because Michelle really does a great job. And students' response, and we had many different kind of students in this audience of all different kind of beliefs and backgrounds, were very receptive in not just the content, but in the approach that Michelle brings. And so we're looking forward to hearing from her in this episode about truth. All right, so let me take you back to my story about when I was a little girl. I asked my mom, how do we know we're right? And she said, because the Bible is true. Okay, well, that's a good answer maybe for a six-year-old. But how do we know the Bible is true, right? I'm a skeptic. How do we know the Bible is true? So maybe you have wondered that, maybe you haven't, but I'm going to give you five reasons, five areas of evidence that support the truth of the Bible, all right? The first one is archaeology. You know what archaeology is, right? What we dig up out of the dirt supports what the Bible says. People from all over the world, some who don't even believe in any kind of a god, go to the Middle East and study biblical archaeology. They view it as a historical book, even if they don't view it as a religious book. And the beauty of the Middle East is that the climate kind of maintains things. Things don't deteriorate out in the Middle East the way they might in, say, South Carolina. So, what they find supports the Bible, and they use the Bible to go find more stuff. Are there people who have disagreements? Sure. Are there things we haven't found yet? Of course. But overall, archaeology supports what the Bible says. The Bible's full of all these details about kings and cities and dates and, and wars and events. And archaeologists use the Bible and archaeology kind of as a circle, right? To support one another. So archaeology is number one. Number two, scrolls. You know, scrolls like paper that's all rolled up and kind of, you know, scrolls. 
Yes? Thank you for nodding your head. Scrolls. We're going to spend a couple extra moments here because this is the challenge I hear the most from students and from adults. How can you believe that what's written in that book is actually what the people wrote down all those years ago? It must have changed. Either it got changed by accident or changed on purpose, but it must have happened. And this is worth thinking about, right? I mean, we should try to find out if that's valid or not. It's not like we have the originals written down by Moses. But what we do have are copies, lots of copies, thousands of copies. The most famous find of the copies were in the 1940s in the area of the Dead Sea. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, as scholars analyzed them, found them to be a thousand years older than any other copies in the world at that time. So what they do is they bring all the copies of a given text together and they analyze them and they say, well, what changed? If this one is a thousand years older than this one, what changes do we see? And what they find is that the texts are between 95 and 97 percent in agreement, accurate, even though a thousand years has gone by. And the differences are primarily things like words that can be spelled differently, punctuation that might be missing, a letter might be dropped in a word, or a word might be dropped in a phrase, but nothing that actually makes the text change its message, okay? And the reason that the copies are so good is because the people who made the copies, the scribes, had these rigid instructions that they would follow in order to make their copies, including that when they were going to write God's name, they would stop everything that they were doing, they would wash themselves from head to foot, and then they would write God's name and go on. And if five words later it was God's name again, they would stop and they would wash themselves before writing God's name. They were going to be clean. They were going to present themselves well to God. Even if you don't believe that this is a holy book, they believed it. They believed it was God's word. And so they took their job very seriously. There's a a video I want to show you of a student asking a really good question about the copies. And she gets a really good answer. So let's take a look. Um, how do you account for the errors of the scribes um, when the New Testament was handed down person to person? Yeah, excellent question. There are errors that we know about. Why? Because we can compare the documents. We can compare the manuscripts and see where the errors are. In fact, let me see if I can show you a representation of that because it's better seen uh, than it is described. Here it is. Let's say you have, here's the original, which we don't have. We don't, at least we, we, we don't think we have any original documents, okay? So they're all copies, okay? Uh, and let's say you find four different copies. And in the first copy, you see an error right here. And then uh, another copy, there's another error right there. In the third copy, there's another error right there. And in the fourth copy, there's an error right there. Can you reconstruct the original? Yes. Yes. And that's what scholars do. 
the original, this happens to be Romans, Romans 3.26, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the note here is the New Testament documents have far fewer variations than this example. So, yes, sometimes scribe made mistakes, but in virtually all cases, we know what the mistake was, and we can correct it by comparing it with other documents. Now, you might say, why wouldn't God just, if this is true, why wouldn't he just maintain the original? I'm speculating here, but I think one reason, well, two reasons. Number one, if we had the original, we might venerate it. We tend to venerate things like that, right? But number two, if I had the original, what could I do to it? I could alter it, right? But if you had a copy, 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 and I had a copy, and I changed my copy, is everyone going to know who changed their copy? Yeah, because when you get all your copies together and compare it to mine, you go, Turek, you heretic, why'd you do that? Right? So by not preserving the original you actually are able to preserve the original better. It's good, right? It's helpful for me to get that kind of an example, and I hope that's helpful for you, because like I said, this is the area that people seem to challenge the most. How can you believe that old-fashioned book could actually still say what it originally said? Now, that example in that video was from a New Testament script. They do the same with the Old and the New Testament. And with the New Testament, we have, again, thousands of copies, thousands of copies to analyze. But the other thing we have that helps us support the New Testament is that the New Testament writers were eyewitnesses. They were writing eyewitness accounts. The New Testament writers either said, I was there, I participated in this event, or they were writing down the stories of someone who was there. This wasn't a situation where it was like, well, I can remember when I was a little kid sitting around the dinner table and this friend of ours came over and they said that their grandmother had a friend who went and sat on the hillside when Jesus was talking, but he was really far away and we don't really know what he said, but this is kind of what she thinks he said. These were people who said, I was there, here's what happened. And the New Testament was written maybe 30 to 60 years after the time of the events took place. So lots of people still living who were able to contribute, clarify, confirm, say, well, that's not quite what happened. This is what happened. This is what I saw. Okay, lots of people around to like help get a bigger understanding of what those events actually were and what Jesus actually said. And scholars and historians say it takes hundreds of years between an event happening and it being written down. It would take hundreds of years for that to develop into kind of like legend status, to get over-exaggerated. But because these stories were written 30 to 60 years after they happened, there wasn't time. There wasn't time for exaggeration to creep into the text. So we can be confident about the New Testament because we have eyewitness accounts. So, archaeology and scrolls and eyewitnesses are kind of what we call external evidence that support the reliability of the Bible. They show us that it is an accurate historical document, but it doesn't actually prove that God had anything to do with it. So, let's talk about prophecy. The Bible is full of prophecy. Hundreds of prophecies. I can't tell you how many because people count them differently. Hundreds of prophecies, specific prophecies about wars, about destruction, about cities, about kings, about people, about famines, all kinds of stuff. About the Jewish Messiah, 
about where he would be born, about his family tree, about what he would do in his life, about how he would die, about where he would be buried, and all kinds of things that would happen next. Hundreds of prophecies. And you should know, God told his people in the Old Testament, the way to identify a false prophet was one that told one wrong prophecy. They prophesy one time and it turns out to be wrong. They are a false prophet. You should take them out and stone them to death. God takes prophecy very seriously. These people, the prophets, would not have been like thrown out that, well, God told me phrase, unless they really knew what they were talking about. And yet we have hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in biblical times, fulfilled after biblical times. Some hundreds of years after the time of the prophet, human beings would not have been able to control the fulfillment of prophecy. Last one is unity. And let me tell you what I mean by that, okay? The Bible is this unique book in unity. The Bible was written in three different languages, on three different continents, by 40 different authors over a period of 1,400 to 1,600 years. It tells one story. It's a collection of all these small stories. I know if you're church kids, you know a lot of the small stories, but it tells one story. It gives us a consistent picture of God's character, a consistent message about our brokenness, and our separation from God, a consistent offer of freedom and restoration. One story. There is no other book in history like this book. Prophecy and unity are these internal characteristics, internal evidence that help us to see that the Bible is more than a history book. It is more than mythology. It is more than a moral code. There is something special about this book. This is God's book. Now I know you can see my handy acronym for helping you remember all this because you're not going to remember all this, but you might remember the acronym, and here's how it works. When someone asks you, why do you believe the Bible is true? You can take a moment, pause, and then remember, prophecy, archaeology, unity, scrolls, and eyewitnesses. See? See how that works? See what I did for you there? Pause. Ooh, a clap. You're welcome. You're welcome. What can I say? Let me give you a couple more thoughts, all right, and then we'll wrap this up. Listen, there are other holy books in the world supported by other religions. People follow them sincerely, believing them to be true. Yes. They cannot all be true. They all contradict each other, and they all contradict this one. And all of those other books fail in one or more of our five areas. If I'm going to choose one to pursue truth, it's going to be this one. And here's what that means. When my world has conflict, and it does, I don't have to care what everybody else thinks. I don't have to care what the influencers say. I don't have to care what my chosen politician says. All I have to do is find out what God says. What is in God's heart? What does God think? And then I can align myself with God. There are two 
many Christians living their lives in disagreement with God. Find out what God says. Care most about what God says. Is this going to make you the most popular person? Probably not. Who cares? This is God's book. So, second big idea for you this morning. How I feel doesn't change what is true. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, whose vision is to see new generations transformed in Christ to further the kingdom of God. Learn more at neverthesame.org.